We're in Genesis chapter 14, looking at the life of Abraham. We're going to look at Genesis 14 and Genesis 15 this evening. You guys kind of like when it's a little bit back to normal and the holidays are nice, but nice when they're done too. Anybody else like that a little bit? I really enjoy uh, Christmas and look forward to it every year. But then also, right about now, January 10th, I'm like, ah, it feels pretty good that it's not December, you know. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham and how you reveal yourself through his life, through his story, your faithfulness, your, your grace. Lord, we thank you for Abraham's courage and his communion with you. And we pray that you would take us deeper into your character, that it would cause us to be courageous. And that we would be your friend, that you would invite us into that greater fellowship with you. So we celebrate your faithfulness. We give you our attention, our focus. We ask that you'd speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Genesis divides itself up into four events and then followed by four people. The four events are chapters 1 through 11. Creation, the fall in the Garden of Eden, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 12 is a new division as we look at God's beginnings of the nation of Israel. Genesis means beginnings. And from chapter 12 to chapter 50, it focuses on four major persons. And the first is Abraham. And Abraham's life is colorful. It's filled with faith, but it's also filled with doubt. It's filled with success, but there's also failure. We learn about God's character as we study the life of Abraham, and we also learn about our own character. In chapter 14, what's highlighted about Abraham is his courage, and then chapter 15 is his communion with God. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 14. And it came to pass in the days of Ermethel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Sidolamar, king of Elam, and Tadel, king of nations, that they made war with Burah, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Sibnab, king of Abna, Shinbir, king of Zibom, and king of Belah, that is Zolah. Man, those names just don't register. What we have here is kings going at it in war. We have five kings going against four kings. And what's important for us to focus on is the king of Sodom and this king of Gomorrah because Lot has joined himself to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's nephew. And so Lot finds himself in the middle of this conflict, in the middle of this this battle that takes place and these kings that are warring with each other. After these joined together in the valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea in southern Israel. Twelve years they served Kedo Lamar, and the thirteenth year they rebelled. So he said, no more. We're not serving this guy. We're not paying him tribute anymore. We're not going to be underneath his, his thumb. So the latter kings, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their alliance, they rebel against the first set of kings and specifically Sido Lamar. 
In the fourteenth year, Sidon Lamar and the kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim and Asheroth Karinim and Zuzim and Ham and Emim in Shavath Kiramith. I'm just totally faking these. And the, and the Horhites, look out for those guys, in the mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness. So, Sidulabar comes and he begins to do his attacking as he's being rebelled against. Then they turned back and came to Ian Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazron Tamar. So he's, he's upset that they're rebelling against him, and so he begins to attack. In verse 8, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they feel defensive, and naturally they go against Sido Lamar. And this is all going to focus on Lot and Abraham's response. Verse 8, and the king Sodom, the king Gomorrah, the king Anma the king Zebum and the king Bela went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddam, which is the Salt Sea. So this conflict is coming together. Against the king of Elam, Tadel, king nations, Arifath, king of Sidon, and Arioch, king of Eliezer, four kings against five. So this is a pretty big conflict uh, that's, that's taking place in the Salt Sea, where you have the four kings coming against five. Now, the valley of Sedum was full of asphalt pits, or tar. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. So the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are defeated, as well as their alliance by Sido Lamar. And in fleeing, they fall into these tar pits. I think it's kind of fitting that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into the tar pits because Sodom and Gomorrah, we know from chapter 13, were such wicked and uh, perverse cities. So here's Lot, Abraham's nephew. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So in the process of defeating Sodom and Gomorrah, they take spoil. And part of that is they kidnap people, and Lot and his family is part of this. Now Spurgeon in his writing points out, when you compromise and you live in Sodom, you're going to go down with Sodom. You're going to go down with the world. So Lot has made Sodom his home. And remember, why did he choose Sodom and Gomorrah? Because it was lush. There was lots of room for his cattle there. It was an economic decision, but a bad spiritual decision, and now he finds himself going down uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah. We know this, but the world's economic system is not stable, right? Things come and go, things change quickly, and we may be attracted to what we see being stability in the world, but in, in one moment it can change. In one moment it can, it can go away. Obviously being wise with finances, but trusting in the living God, not uncertain riches. Trusting in the living God, not the stability of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you were a financial planner, you would have picked Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked good. It looked prosperous. Your gains were going to be 10%. This was the place to be. And where Abraham was hanging out did not look very good financially. Because he's out in the pasture 
where God had told him to, to dwell. But things don't always go as planned, right? Uh, the, the interest rates in the stock market are not always 5% leading up to 30 years in this guarantee of how things are supposed to, to work out. And so Lot, he put all of his trust in Sodom in this financial uh, decision, and now he finds himself kidnapped, he and his family. Now we read this like, oh yeah, he got kidnapped. You know, bad day for Lot. I guess it didn't work out very well. This is super traumatic, right? This evasion takes place, and you find yourself completely being kidnapped. And then notice what Abram's response is. And it's one of these hero moments in the Bible, the action that Abram takes. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebith trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anner, and they were allies with Abram. So they come and they declare to Abram what has taken place, that Lot has been taken captive. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, which is his lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is awesome. This is like one of those moments where you're like, Abram was a warrior. So there's this dichotomy in Abram's life. On one hand, we see him in the chapter prior lying about his wife, saying, this is my sister, to save his own skin when he went to Egypt, totally acting in fear. And then this other moment, he's fierce warrior. He's got 318 men that have been born in his own house. This lets you know how prosperous he is and how many servants he has. And he trains every single one of them. He's like, guys, we're going to know how to take care of business if we need to. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading the scriptures, I'm like, I just didn't get this in Sunday school. And it was probably not uh, their fault. It was probably because I wasn't paying attention. But when I sang Father Abraham had many sons, in my mind as an eight-year-old, I'm like, what a sissy, you know? This guy just sounds like a big sissy pants, right? He was not a sissy. Like, he was a man's man. He was tough. These guys were trained. They're ready to take care of business. The, the Navy SEALs go out to kick a can here. Uh, and there, there's 318 of them, and they're going to go up against these kings that have just defeated four other kings, and they're extremely uh, victorious. This makes no sense. You know, this is, this is not logical to do this. He goes all the way up to Dan, which is northern Israel, in the area of modern-day Syria, and travels all the way up there to go after Lot. Now, if you remember, when God called Abram, he said, I want you to not take any family. You know, leave your family. It's, it's just you and Sarah. Go where I'm calling you. And Abram had partial obedience, and he took Lot with him, and that decision is costing him. But he doesn't see Lot as collateral damage, and he's like, I should have never brought the nephew along. This is my opportunity to get rid of him. Life's going to be a lot easier without the nephew, right? We probably all have an uncle like that. It's like, you got yourself into this? Uh, good luck, right? 
but he's willing to, to risk and to have courage because his family member has been taken captive by the enemy. And I think this speaks to us in our own families and in the family of God. Is Are we willing to take a risk and take a step of faith when it comes to a family member or a friend in the body of Christ that's been taken captive by the enemy? When they found themselves in a place where they shouldn't be and they've made alliances with the world that they, they shouldn't have made. And it's easy for us to go, well, you know, they made their own bed, now they have to lie in it. They haven't been around here much. They, sh- they should know better. The, the odds aren't very good if I go and pursue them. But God tells us in his word that, that we're to pursue those that are in a place of compromise for the sake of trying to win a brother. And we would hope that someone would do that for us. Amen, right? If we're at a place where we, we're compromising, we're not where we should be, that someone would pursue us the way that Abraham pursues Lot. Let's see how things uh, turn out. In verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So if you're looking at a map or take the time to look at a map and you see northern Israel and you see where Damascus is, Abraham goes beyond Damascus, north of Damascus, into Syria in order to get Lot. He's very strategic in his attack. He divides his 318 men, and he attacks at night and uses the element of surprise. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women, and the people. This is over a hundred mile trip back. And he brings back Lot, his family, all of their goods, and is able to recover all of this. And God honors his courage and gives him a great, great victory. In verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Sidolamir and the kings who were with him. So the king of Sodom, he comes out to thank Abram because he's just been defeated, but then Abram goes and, and takes it to Sidolamir. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we see another king coming and approaching Abraham, and it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine He was the priest of God most high. Melchizedek means righteousness. King of Salem, many Bible scholars believe that Salem refers to Jerusalem. Salem, we do do know, means peace. Jesus is the ultimate king of righteousness who brings peace. Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine. What does that remind you of? Communion. Jesus came and served us in bread and wine in the Last Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. This is symbolic of my broken body and my shed blood for you. But he's a king, but he's also a priest. He was the priest of the most high God, the one true uh, living God. As you study the Old Testament, you know how rare this is that there would be a king who is also a priest. 
In fact, when God set things up for the children of Israel, when they would have a king, he would say, look, the kings cannot be priests. This has to be separated. Uzziah, one king, tried to overstep this, and God struck him with leprosy. The only other that was both king and priest is Jesus Christ. He's the king of kings, but yet he is the high priest. So the question here in the text is, is this a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ? Does Melchizedek, is he a a type of Christ? Or is this Christ stepping onto the pages of the Old Testament in the form of Melchizedek? And there's a lot of great Bible teachers and those that love the Lord, and they're pretty split 50-50. Some are like emphatically like this is Christ on the pages of the Old Testament, and others is like this is a foreshadowing, a type of, of Christ. We know for sure in Hebrews 7 that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus came in the line of Melchizedek. Did not come along the line of Aaron and Levi, but on the line of Melchizedek. All I know is there's a lot of Jesus here. And we're in Genesis 14. We're in the beginnings of scripture. And God is very clearly pointing us to his son. The king who is righteous. The king who brings peace. The king who serves us with bread and wine. Who is also the priest. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who's delivered you and your enemies into your hands. So he pronounces blessing upon Abram. And he gave him a tenth of all. So Abram tithes to Melchizedek. And the lesser gives to the greater. And this is a big point in the book of Hebrews of why the line of Melchizedek is greater than the line of Levi because Abraham is the father of Israel, but yet he gave his tithe to Melchizedek. And so it shows that the line of Melchizedek is greater than than Abraham. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but if you're a Jew, that's a really big deal because Abram's like the Pope. Abraham's like the man, right? He's the father of Israel. And so the author of Hebrews is showing us that Jesus is greater than Abraham because Abraham, he tithed to Melchizedek, showing that the the lesser gives to the the greater. Why would Abraham tithe at this point? Ultimately, he's giving to the Lord. A tithe is a 10% because Abram realizes this victory did not happen because he's a big buff stud. His victory did not happen because of their Navy SEAL training. It's like the song that we sang tonight, that this battle is not going to be won by my own strength. He's acknowledging that this is, God did this. And so everything that I have and everything that I am is because of the Lord. And giving is such a beautiful thing in our hearts to tithe to the Lord, to take that step of faith to do that because it's recognizing that it all belongs to him and it's all come from him in a very practical way. We can say that, but then when we give, it really puts actions to to that belief. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods uh, for yourself. So we see this dialogue between two kings, the king of Melchizedek and then the king of Sodom. So now this is the king of of Sodom speaking. 
says, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that's yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. (laughs) Abram says, I don't want any of this stuff. And there would be a lot of stuff. There would be a lot of spoils from defeating these kings. And these kings have just gone on a rampage and they've defeated and brought a lot of of spoils. And Abram says, I don't want it because I don't want you to say that it was you that made Abram great. He wanted people to be able to point to the Lord and say, why is Abram great? Because of the Lord. God has made him great. And this takes a lot of faith for Abram to be able to do this. In verse 24, accept only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Abner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take uh, their portion. He says, the guys that were with me, make sure that they get to eat and we'll call it good. I'll take Lot and his family and what belongs to Lot, what he had prior to this conflict. Make sure the boys get some carne asada or some bacon cheeseburgers and we're going to be on our way. We're, we're going to be done with uh, this, this whole thing. And this shows that Abram's in a place of trusting in the Lord, not, not trusting in man, not trusting the king of Sodom. I think deep down, Abram knows the wickedness of Sodom, and he's like, I'm not interested, you know? I'm, I'm not interested in that at all. I don't want to join myself to that wagon. I don't want to put myself on that train. I'll pass on all the the stuff, and and just stay close uh, to the Lord. This is one of those sections of scripture that's really fun to study together. Like if we stopped at chapter 14, we may miss the power of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. We go from Abram's courage to now his communion with God. There's two places in scripture where Abram is called the friend of God. Now that's quite a compliment. If there was one thing you would want on your resume or on your epitaph, said at your funeral, oh man, he was a friend of God. He enjoyed fellowship with God, communing with God, hearing from the Lord, talking with the Lord. And we see God's communication with Abram here. And God speaks to him through this dream and says, don't be afraid. Now, God saying that through the dream means that Abram was afraid. Why was he afraid? What did I just do? I just took on these five kings with 318 guys. I don't know if that was the best decision, they're going to come back and take revenge on me and there's no way we're going to protect ourselves. They're going to have the element of surprise. God knows that and says, I don't want you to be in a place of fear. What Abram goes through with his doubt and his courage, his faith and his fear is what we go through as well. Sometimes right after our greatest moment of faith, it's followed by our biggest moment of fear. You take that step of faith. You trust the Lord. You have courage in the Lord and you're like, what am I doing out here? 
this is crazy. You know, who, who talked me into this? And you're like, oh yeah, Lord, it was you. You know, you, you wanted me to do this. And, and God is so gracious to come to Abram and say, you don't need to be afraid. And he gives him a reason why. He says, I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. I am your protection. So many times in scripture, God calls his people out on fear and the answer to fear is always his presence. Saying, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. I'm gonna be your shield. I know, Abram, that you are not protected. You cannot defend yourself against all of these kings, but I can protect you and I can be your shield. I'm the great almighty. My resources are not limited. And then what I love about this verse is God says, I'm your reward, Abram. There had to have been a little bit of regret in Abram's heart. Just like he was afraid, he probably also was running his budget and going, man, did I really say no to all that money? It was the right thing to do, but man, maybe it would have been nice to have some of that stuff that I just, I just said no to. And God's saying, look, the stuff is not your reward. I'm your reward and I'm more than enough. And a lot of times we're looking for the physical reward in life. We're going, man, if I follow the Lord, then this is going to be the physical reward. Sometimes there is, but a lot of times there's not. And God's saying, I'm not about a physical reward. I'm the reward in and of myself. Fellowship with me, communion with me. I'm more than enough. And then I love the fact that Abram can go on and have a conversation with the Lord. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? When we first read this, we go, really? Man, that's pretty brutally honest. Abram didn't go, oh Lord, thank you so much for being my shield and being my reward and helping me to get out of the valley of fear. He's like, I don't understand this. You're saying that you're my reward but I still go childless. You told me that I was going to become a great nation and that my descendants would be a blessing to the whole entire world. That we would number as the sands of the sea. And here I am. I'm not getting any younger. Sarah's still beautiful, but she's not getting any younger either. And the heir of my house is my servant. And he's not even an Israelite. He, he's not even from my family. He's, he's from Damascus. He's, he's from Syria. And he has that with the Lord. And I think lovingly, respectfully, part of being the friend of God is where we can share our heart with God and say, Lord, I just don't get this. We were studying in staff devotions this morning, 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul writes, and he says, we're perplexed, but yet not in despair. And I'm so thankful that the intellectual giant, Apostle Paul, says, I'm perplexed. Because I look at that guy and I go, he could probably figure out just about anything. A spiritual giant, an intellectual giant. But yet as he's wrestling through his journey, he's like, I'm perplexed. I don't understand why this is going this way. And here's Abram as well, able to have that honest conversation with the Lord. How about you? How about me? Are you able to have those kind of conversations with God? God, this was your promise. This is what you told me. 
that all these years have gone by. This is what you say in your word, but I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I, I don't get it. In verse three, then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my own house is my heir. My servant is my, my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God answers his question, saying, this one shall be your heir, but one who will come from, your, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Your servant is not going to be your heir. You and Sarah are going to have a child, and that child's going to be the promised child and is going to be your heir. And God's going to confirm this with a covenant. In verse 5, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you're able to number them, and he said to him, So shall your descendants be. I hope that everyone has had the experience of getting away from the city lights, of getting out into the mountains when there's no moon and just looking up at the stars. It's probably one of the biggest tragedies of our cities. I love living in the city. It's great being in the city. But we don't get to look up and behold, behold the stars. I grew up in a small town. There weren't a lot of city lights, nothing compared to Colorado Springs. And we would camp out in the backyard a lot in the grass and just stare up at the stars. And I love taking our family camping, getting up into the mountains and being able to see the stars. Abram doesn't have any of the distractions with the city lights and God's just like, take it in. Look up at the stars and try to count them. Your descendants are gonna be more than the stars of the heavens. In essence, God's saying, look, Abram, I can create all of this. I can also give you a son and bless that son to have descendants that would multiply. And this leads to Isaac, and Isaac leads to Jacob. Jacob leads to the 12 tribes of Israel. So through Abraham comes the birth of the nation of Israel. And this is what really stands out about Abram's character and he believed in the Lord, and it is accounted to him for righteousness, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram didn't go to God and say, God, are you sure? Like, I, I'm not really too old to have kids. I'm not sure if the plumbing even still works. Uh, Sarah's been barren our whole entire marriage. I don't think that this is going to result in a child. Write down Romans chapter 4. I encourage you to maybe read it tonight or, or tomorrow morning because Paul goes into greater detail in this where Abram didn't even consider his own weakness. In his faith, he's like, I'm not even a part of this equation. Even though I'm weak and I'm old and I'm not able to have kids and my wife is barren, God's able to do the impossible. I'm not a part of the equation in order for God's promises to come true. If God said it, I'm going to believe it. The book of Romans uses this as an example of faith that leads to justification. When we trust God that he is able to save us, that he's able to do something that we can't do for ourselves, that's what Abram's believing, that God can do something that Abram can't do for himself, that we don't bring anything to the equation of salvation, 
that it's a free gift through the finished work of Jesus Christ, then it's imputed to us, it's accounted to us for righteousness. Abraham is an example of justification by faith. A beautiful picture of us trusting the Lord that he's able to do the impossible, that the gospel is true, and it results in salvation in our lives. What I always find convicting in my life is I can trust God for salvation. How come I have such a hard time trusting him in some situations in my life? Doesn't that hurt, you know? It's like, God, I do trust you for salvation, but I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. And then I get some perspective. I'm like, wait a second. If I can trust him for salvation, I I can trust him for all of these other situations in my life. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. He rehearses his personal faithfulness in Abram's life. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he's saying, would you give me a sign? Would you give me a testimony so that I know that I'm going to inherit this? So he said to him, bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's a small farm right there. It's quite a bit. A three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram. Hey, let's throw in a turtle dove and a pigeon. Why not, right? And these were to be the sacrifices. In verse 10, then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite of each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. That was nice of him. Birds are kind of small. He's like, ah, we're not going to cut the birds uh, in two, but these larger animals he, he cut in two. And there was a practice at this time that was called cutting covenant. And if you were going to make a, an agreement with someone, you would kill an animal, cut the animal open, and then you would walk through it with the person that you were making the agreement with. And the idea was this. If you break this contract, the blood's on you. It's a very clear communication, right? So this is what Abram's expecting, is I'm told to kill these animals and cut covenant. I'm going to do my part of this agreement, and God's going to do his part of his agreement. And we're coming to the table to say, yep, we're going to do this. But notice what happens as this continues. And when the vultures came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. So he's waiting for God to come and confirm this covenant, and he's diligent just to try to keep the vultures away from the sacrifice. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So he gets tired, and a deep sleep comes upon him, and there's this horror, and this, this, this great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. This speaks of their time in bondage to the Egyptians. God foretold that. He says there's going to be a time where your descendants are going to be strangers in the land and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And that's exactly what happened while the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. In verse 14, And also the nations whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with a great possession. 
God fulfilled that perfectly, judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they left Egypt with a great possession. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Abram, you're going to have a good full life. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is really interesting. I want you guys to please note this. Is God saying to Abraham, it's not time for your descendants to have this promised land until they've been in bondage for 400 years in Egypt because the time of the Amorites, their sin has not been completed for 400 years. One of the biggest complaints of scripture is how could God send Joshua into the land of Canaan and tell him to wipe them out completely? Many say, how could a loving God order that? God gave them 400 years to repent of their sin and they did not repent of their sin. Then after 400 years, God ordered their judgment through Joshua's conquest. There does come a point where a society gets so sinful for so long that ultimately God's judgment comes. But 400 years is a pretty long time, wouldn't you agree? And the children of Israel, part of them being in bondage was to wait for the Amorites' sin, their iniquity to be completed. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the two pieces. And this symbolizes God's presence, this burning torch and this this smoking oven. And notice, it's not a two-way contract based upon Abraham's obedience. It's a God-initiated covenant that he fulfills completely. God goes through the animals that that are cut open, but Abram does not. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kethnites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Adosites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and don't forget to put to bed the Jebusites. This is over 300,000 square miles. The most that Israel ever inhabited under Solomon and David was 30,000 square miles. They never inhabited all that God promised to them. And that's a lot like our experience with the Lord as well. God's given us so many promises, but a lot of them we haven't entered into through faith. This is a really big deal, guys, in Scripture. What we just read here in chapter 15 in Abraham's communion with God, it shows us how we're saved. We're saved through faith. When we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, receiving that free gift of salvation, it's accounted to us for righteousness. We're robed in Christ's righteousness. Something that we can't do in ourselves. As you continue to study the scriptures, this is a unique covenant that God gives to Abraham because it is one-sided. It's all based upon God's faithfulness, not Abraham's faithfulness. Because when God gives the covenant through Moses, it's not that way. It's a two-sided covenant where God says, if you obey Israel, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. You choose what you want, blessing or cursing. 
The new covenant that is in the blood of Jesus Christ lines up with this covenant that was given to Abraham. Our covenant that God makes with us is not a two-sided agreement where God's saying, look, if you do your part, I'll do my part. It's a one-sided agreement. All of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he declared, it is finished. Jesus went through the blood, if you would, on our behalf that we receive through faith. Now, what the interesting part is, is was Abraham faithful? Yes. Did he falter? Yes. Did he sin? But is the overarching theme of Abraham's life one of faithfulness? Yes. Did the children of Israel experience faithfulness under the old covenant? No, they didn't. When it was a two-sided agreement, they failed miserably. When we receive salvation through faith, and it's a one-sided covenant, hopefully the grace of God produces faithfulness in our lives. I think the potential for God's grace in our lives to lead to faithfulness is far greater. Because grace should win our hearts. Grace should win our allegiance. That Christ has given everything for us, a free gift of salvation, and he's, he's merited that upon us, undeserved, unearned. He's just poured that upon us. We go, wow, you would take my place upon the cross. And that moves us to love Christ, and we serve him out of love. And that faith does result in faithfulness, not perfection. And I'm convinced that God in his wisdom showed us in the old covenant that a two-sided agreement doesn't work. If you have a a law-based relationship with God, it's not going to work. Because it's always going to lead to two things. It's either going to lead to condemnation because we didn't live up to the standard, or pride because we did live up to the standard. And why can't other people get their act together like us? And God doesn't want us to be living on Mount Sinai, the old covenant. He wants us to be living on the Mount of Calvary where we're understanding what Christ has done for us. When does God come through and establish this covenant? When Abraham's asleep. He's not able to to walk through. And that was the intent that God had. God's saying, Abraham, this is something that I am going to do. So I hope tonight that we're encouraged in two things. And the first is courage. The first is courage. God calls us to courage. And when we see things happening, especially to family members in our immediate families and in the family of God, man, take action. See what God would do. Don't be limited by the fact that the odds are stacked against us. Be motivated by the fact that I want to win a brother. I want to win a sister. I want to see them come out of the bondage of the enemy. They're not acting like themselves. Something is not wrong, right? I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to reach out to them and and see if the Lord would, would do a work. And then to commune with God. Allow God to meet you in your fears. We all have fears. Allow God to meet you in your, your difficult questions and respond in faith, trusting the new covenant. We get to celebrate the new covenant tonight in communion. When was the last time you just appreciated the sacrifice of Christ? Where you ac- appreciated that Jesus has come through the line of Melchizedek? Let Christ serve you in bread and wine tonight. 
come in fellowship with him at the communion table. So let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you <clears throat> for your grace, that salvation and every blessing in our life is through grace. And would you meet us tonight in the communion table? Like Abraham, may we fellowship with you. May we find ourselves in that place where we could be the friend of God. Would you take what you, we've read and apply it to our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name. Amen.